Spotlight On. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today the spotlight is on Phil Messier. Phil is an accomplished musician and serial entrepreneur based in Montreal, Quebec. He is currently co-founder and VP of Product and Partnerships at Bopper, where he brings together ad industry people and the artists they love through a platform featuring the best selection of fully cleared independent music that can be licensed instantly for all types of branded campaigns. Phil has created a unique life for himself in music, and through his businesses, he does the same for many others. Please enjoy our conversation. Lawrence. Phil, how are you, sir? <laughs> I'm great. Yourself? I'm doing all right, thank you. Uh, thanks so much for making time. My pleasure. Where are you, sir? I'm in a living room in uh, Montreal, Canada. What a beautiful town. What a beautiful city. I love Montreal. We've been here. Yeah, I love it here. The more I travel, the more I love it here. Yeah, I think that's, a, that's very fair to say. So what's the, uh, tell me a little bit about the situation in Montreal these days. Um, how are things? How's the climate? How are people doing? You know, it's not easy for anyone uh, anywhere in the world, but I don't know, I guess I I feel these days we're kind of grateful for every day of, of, uh, of stability, you know? <laughs> and we have quite a bit of that here, despite all the debate, despite all the politics and all that. Like, people seem to have, like, a good handle over things. People are somewhat patient, you know, with... Uh, with uh, back and forth, policies changing, incoherences, you know. Uh, so it's not, it's not so bad, you know. I can't say it's perfect, you know, nowhere is perfect, but it's not so bad. And it, it looks like even though this could continue for a while, it doesn't seem like uh, it, things have to get back to normal or it's total chaos, you know. It seems we can sustain this again for, for, for a while more. And I'm saying that with all like my heart going to the, the artists and the staff on the tours that are getting canceled. I was just on the phone yesterday with a buddy of mine and more, show, more, more shows were canceled. Um, so all of that stuff is, is really hard to hear, but, but in, 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 so that's, that's the rough part uh, in our industry. But aside from that, I don't know, I'm knocking on wood. It's not so bad just yet. Yeah. And is, um, is Montreal still, are you locked down? Like what's the, what's the you know, how, how is it in public? What, what's the vibe? So the, the way it works is like we have like these zones, like red zones and, and, and orange zones and green zones. And, and depending on the, the rate of new cases, we go back from uh, yellow to orange, from orange to red. So, so these days, Montreal is in a red zone. So we're all hoping mm -hmm. that, so until, for, until the end of uh, the month of October, so we're all hoping that if we do well, we'll go back to orange. And then maybe if we do well until Christmas, we'll go back to yellow. But, you know, the data, like, this changes as new data is coming in. And uh, so we're all doing our best, uh, I guess. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, um, have you? Are you from Montreal originally? What's where? Yeah, where are you yeah, from? yeah. I'm from here originally. Yeah, yeah. Born and you grew up in the city. In the city, like in a yeah, in a. It's in the city, but it's a bit of a suburb. But yeah, like suburban life with a metro station, subway station. So yeah, I could say city. Yeah. And what were you as a kid? Were you a music person? Were you a tech geek? You know, what, uh, what was your, what was your path in that? Uh, yeah, that's uh, yeah, a, a bit of both, to be honest. Like I, I, and both were like really uh, developed in parallel. Like I came in, I wasn't one of these kids that, you know, uh, was taught violin, violin or whatever at age five. So it was really during adolescence, like we're like listening to, to bands that I liked, that was really into to punk at the time. And, and when techno came out, like I'm talking about the like early 90s, like we were getting these records from uh, uh, Europe and, and Chicago. And, and so I was really into that as well. So it was kind of a mixed bag. Like I was into punk, I was a sax player, and I, and I really was into techno at some point. So, um, so it was a very weird mix that got me in trouble at music school because <laughs> and, people weren't it's like I was at like jazz school, like heavily like Berkeley influenced uh, jazz school and, and like electronic music at the time, like we're talking early 90s. Uh, it wasn't cool, you know, <laughs> it was like to the, these days we take that for granted and electronic music is obviously everywhere and, and percolated in pretty much every genre of music. But at the time it was like uh, rock and roll was a thing and the acoustic genres were, 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 were the thing and, uh, and being in a jazz dominated school and even mentioning an interest in, in I was into sampling, you know, and things like that. And at the time, it was it was uh, it was not great, you know. It wasn't it was it was a bit too nerdy for the time. But that's what that's what I was into, you know. I was into the, the like the early Beastie Boys, the techno records. I it was all about like okay, who are who is pushing the boundaries out there and doing new stuff, uh, which and and if you've been in music school, like music schools are are, are typically kind of conservative. Yeah. Um, even the jazz schools, you know, that were in a sense a reaction to the traditional way classical music was taught in music school, even those tend to be very, a, a bit dogmatic and, uh, and then traditional in a way. So, so, so um, yeah, my, my interest in uh, sampling and electronic music uh, didn't fit really well over there. Yeah. That's very, that's an interesting point you make about the, the traditionalism in music schools, because I think it's something that people who aren't familiar with those cultures would be surprised to find, especially from a jazz sort of conservatory point of view. Indeed, I very much agree. Like people don't, yeah, if you're not, if you're not going through these schools or close to these people, you don't realize how, how rigid and traditional these are. And I'm actually like, I don't know if you get the same uh, ads I'm getting these days of all these new music teaching services that are out there, like based on mobile devices, like iPads and phones and all that. And to me, that's such an exciting space. Like I'm not involved in that at all. Like I don't really use these tools, but I find these guys are taking such a refreshing approach to, to music learning and teaching. That's complete. Like that just like, did like completely uh, 
blank slate with everything we were taught, you know, and, and that, that approach music teaching from much more, I would say like, uh, uh, I don't know, I see like, like investment in, in quality of life and community and uh, yeah. like uh, sometimes there's like a social aspect to it and, and, uh, and, and just like the good fun of playing music, you know, and improving and working on it and, and all these things which was, was not <laughs> the dominant approach back when I was at school. Yeah, no, I think that's very fair. When I was a kid, um, you know, I, I took piano lessons at a very early age and it was a very sort of stereotypical experience, you know, a, a kind of slightly mean <laughs> woman. Sort of, I dreaded practicing. It was never, it was never fun. And certainly for the first year, um, never really played the piano. You know, it was about drawing notes in the book um, and reading theory. And as a little kid, it was so non-engaging. And I contrast that with my son. Um, he started taking lessons about 10 years ago and his music school was the complete opposite. The, it was all geared towards getting the kids to play. Good. So, you know, sit them in front of the keyboard and peck out a melody very quickly. I love that. And when it was time to teach them about rhythm, they sat them in front of a drum and, you know, just very hands-on about playing. But I thought the, 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 the thing I loved the most was when they did their, um, you know, they didn't call them recitals. They called them uh, gigs. And <laughs> so, the, yeah, so the kids that. would take, you know, each semester and learn a couple of songs but then at the gig, the teachers formed the house band and the kids would front the band to play their Amazing. songs. Uh, and, I, I, I'm so happy to hear that because I'm not like really in contact with these, uh, these schools anymore these days. And I'm so happy to hear that, that, that change is making its way because like, as we were saying, like even at jazz school, with, which was supposed to be a reaction, it, it got very uh, caught up in its own uh, rigidity and... Uh, uh, so yeah, that's good to hear. Yeah, and the difference with playing in front of people with a drummer behind you versus sitting at a piano alone, you know, of course, uh, so exciting. Um, yeah. How did you how did you come to pick up the horn? Why why the sax? Oh man, you would like it's 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 it's, it's I don't know if people have good reasons to pick up an instrument. Mine was really bad. I w like as I said, I was into punk music, and there was this like French band that we love, like punk from Paris which was called Berrurier Noir, <laughs> which I'm sure you, your listeners never heard of, but it was a bit, it was big. Like if, if you have like a, I'm, I'm, if you have like French listeners, they'll, they'll, they'll remember that time, but it was a really good, like a revolutionary punk type of band mm -hmm. uh, in the, in the eighties. And for some reason, a sax player made its way into that band. And they, they, they were these like amazing sax hooks in there that just really, drove the song and both of my brothers were guitar players so so I couldn't pick up guitars they were older brothers and it was just like ah, I have to find something else you know I can't just do everything they're doing <laughs> so I had to find something else and there was that those like great sax lines so there was like this beat up horn at school and how many class that I took so I just took the horn and 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 ran with it and, 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 and continued for, 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 for the love of playing music, playing with people, eventually got into jazz, but really uh, like, I don't know, without no big purpose, I would say, it was just like discovering music, enjoying it. Um, 
but I'm not from like a jazz family, you know, I met like, of course, and I played with all these people with like amazing uh, jazz families and, and, uh, and uh, education and all that for me was more of a, of a following like interest, like immediate interest going from one thing to the next. And it's really when I got into electronic music that I really, I felt there was something for me there, even though I continued to play the horn for, for quite a while, it's really into electronic music that I kind of first found my voice, if I can say that. Yeah. Even though yeah. I, I don't consider myself like a great producer, composer, or anything like that, but it's it's part of obviously my 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 journey. That's how I got into to music. You know, the is somewhat typical journey from like player, composer, producer, and eventually. Uh, full-on entrepreneur which is the hat i've been wearing for 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 many years now but uh yeah well let me uh let me uh take one more or two detours before we get to the business uh or the, sure, the, sure. the transition into the business world let me ask um you know i i do i do recognize that there's a uh you know there there's more of a tradition i think than people might otherwise realize of um saxophones and horn players in sort of heavy music. I think, you know, John That's Zorn is true. sort of an obvious example, but Peter yeah. Bratzman, uh, guys like that. Do, do you, what, did you have a pantheon of, of sax players that were sort of your guys? Well, of course I was into like uh, uh, the classics, you know, Coltrane and, and, and these guys. Well, today my, 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 my guy is Hank Mobley. Okay. Oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> that's so you guy. got a little more traditional you got a little more uh yeah, that's, uh, like that's, that's it i went like uh, i explored and i i was heavily into john zorn uh, uh, for a time heavily into coltrane it's the first time i hear someone making a parallel be- a parallel between like uh uh horn players and and heavy music but it's true it's definitely out there and there's a bunch of examples of that and i find that interesting but yeah, so, so, so my, my guy is Hank Mobley. Like I, and that's it. Like for me, jazz, like it peaked in that era. And not that I, like, I don't have, like, I'm fine with jazz today. And I enjoy jazz as much as the next guy. But like everything that I was into after that period, which I guess is like hard bop is, is what yeah. it would be called. Um, it, to me, it peaked there. Uh, I, and that's a very personal per- perspective. Like every guy would have, have his uh, guy or girl would have his uh, opinion. But to, to me, that's the pinnacle of, of sax playing is, 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 is Hank Mobley in that period where, where like melody, like improvised melody on the spot on very tonal, familiar chord structures <laughs> were the thing just before it broke off into uh, very experimental uh, stuff, and and it's funny because on 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 other sides of my like, music interests, I I mean way more experimental stuff, uh, but for jazz, I don't know. I just stopped there. <laughs> yeah, that's that's funny. I I'm a, I'm sort of a big McCoy Tyner fan. Okay, and uh, and so he has definitely some overlap. He, I think he's on a couple of Hank Mobley records. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. and. Uh, I, I, it's very interesting you 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 point out to that, that era because uh, Coltrane's kind of you know my guy as well and um, I, I I love the sort of sixty one 
when he was playing with Eric Dolphy, like yeah. right before he got out there, but he was just sort of leaving exactly. the, the station, you know? Those, those exactly, just when he was leaving the station. I love that. And those are the records that I still play today, like the, the uh, Miles Davis Quintet records uh, uh, just before that, all that, that period where, where his sound was like really mature, but before he, he, he broke off into, uh, into weird stuff. And again, like, much respect for the weird stuff and the experimentation. I have like, I make no judgment on that at all. It's just that these records that I tend to listen to these days are, are these ones where, where it was still on the, still somewhat at the station. <laughs> yeah. So in terms of where jazz and electronic music meets these days, um, do, like, do you, do you, are you up on people like uh, Donnie McCaslin and things like that? Not so much, to be honest. I, I don't follow that. Uh, no, I'm not really up to speed. Like, uh, actually, any names that I would tell you that I that I yeah. that I would mention would tell you that I'm not up to speed on what's being done. What are you What are you primarily listening to? Are you more on the electronic side, or like what What's what 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 gets a spin on a good day for you? Oh man, it's uh, it's. Uh, to new lost city ramblers these days and uh, oh nice yeah <laughs> so yeah well yeah i i just like when the pandemic hit like first like a uh, phase or whatever in march i ordered a banjo online and i just got into this like rabbit hole of like banjo like uh uh and not blue not bluegrass that much but really old time Appalachian banjo, uh, the playing, the tunes, the performers, the instruments, all of that have been, have been heavily into that. I don't know if it's a, if it's a, a signs of, uh, of uh, me and other people looking, looking for a simpler life or whatever. It, it <laughs> I was says. thinking melancholy. I was thinking mel I deep mean, melancholy. I don't know. Maybe that's a, but honestly, it's, it's, it's keeping me very focused. You know, I'm, I'm heavily into that at nights and in the weekends. I'm loving all of that. So, so, and I like these new, uh, like I, I discovered, I don't know how well known she is, but, but someone like Nora Brown, like she plays, uh, old time banjo and she's super young uh but she so she obviously was brought up in the the, the uh, like old time appalachian tradition but she takes it some com like somewhere else completely not not so much with like electronics and hybridization or things like that but just the way she approaches the tune like the the, the way she sings and obviously like growing up hearing all the music we all hear on the radio and all that, you, you see that in her music, but, it, but it's super stripped down like uh, uh, banjo vocals, uh, super nice voice and, and uh, timeless classics. So that kind of combination, I've, I've been discovering these artists and I'm having a lot of fun. So it's not like the most trendy uh, hip stuff, but it's what, uh, <laughs> that's what I like these days. Yeah, well, so when, so you went to music school and did you do a four-year program? Was it an undergrad program? Or? I did both. Like I did a, here we have like, a, it, it's a very Quebec thing. Like I think I live in Quebec, which is a province in Canada. And we have our own little school system where between a high school and university, you have like, an, like a three-year, two-year or three-year college. Um, so, so I did music there. Uh, so it's like, call it a three-year college. And then I went to university for like a full-on uh, bachelor's degree 
uh, in music, which I quit along the way because at the time uh, I, I was starting my first company uh, when I was in university. So I quit. So I didn't finish the, the, the degree and I went back 10 years later thinking they would... Uh, thinking they would lay out the red carpet for me and say, oh, <laughs> I just fill out this form and we'll give you your degree. And that's not what they did at all. So I, w- I went back on the school benches at night. That was a fun experience. Anyway, I digress. But yeah, I did, I did a bunch of years in, in music school. And so was the, um, was the aspiration never really that you were going to be a professional musician or did you just realize at some point it's not a life that you wanted like how how did you go from music school to business there's a bunch of like uh um like posts or whatever like uh, in 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 the path like important uh, marks in the path i don't know how to call them one i remember very vividly is um as a young adult you know i was working in restaurants that that what I was doing at the time, like, I don't know which, uh, what age I was, like maybe 21 or something like that. And I remember telling myself, I need to somehow um, get my stuff together and make a living out of this before I'm 25. And I meant music. Uh, before I'm 25, oh, I'll switch to something else, you know. So I gave myself a horizon. And I, it was really, it wasn't really a conscious thing. It just happened. I was like, I can't be working in restaurants like that to support my, my music uh, stuff forever. You know, it had like a, an expiration date, you know, that, that lifestyle, because at the time I was like playing gigs and all that. And, and, and I, I couldn't pay the bills with that. So, so I, 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 I worked in restaurants. So it was real, I really told myself I have until 25 to live of this. Otherwise I'll do something else. And I'm a curious guy, you know, and I've always been a curious guy. So doing something else for me wasn't like necessarily a failure. It was just, oh, if it doesn't work, I need to do something else. You know, uh, it was very, very simple. And, and I don't know if it was that, that fact, but like, I don't think it was like two years later, I, I was living well of what I was doing. Like it, it was pretty fast at the time. Like I, 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 it, during those days, I started like, working like i mean creating music with my my buddy paul at the time was a good friend and we started making music together with samplers uh digital digital tape machines and like uh that that kind of stuff and within 24 months like we were we were quitting our jobs like pretty much it was pretty fast and and it was it was an interesting time, you know, because, uh, and I'm sure, like, we were in Montreal, and I'm sure it was the same everywhere in the world where we were transitioning from this era where you created slash produced music in studios that, I don't know, they cost, they cost like millions of dollars to build, just to build out uh, traditional studio build outs and then the equipment like like expensive tape machines and expensive consoles and microphone all of that stuff was crazy expensive and almost overnight uh, and and that's again that's a moment that I remember very vividly we transitioned to digital recording okay 
so so there were there were steps along the way like there was pro tools before there was uh recording directly on your computer you know there was tape digital tape machines like adats and stuff like that that were like cheaper than large tape machines and all that but those are all like within a a couple of years this all happened maybe maybe five six years and when i say like our music careers kind of started to take off the moment i remember is that i was literally in line for a computer store to to open to get the first computer on which you could record music natively and when i say natively uh, for people not familiar with this, I mean without uh, resorting to hundreds of thousands of dollars of outboard um, digital equipment. You know, at the time, you could have like a Pro Tools system for $120,000 that replaced all your studio, blah, blah, blah. But it was still completely out of reach of like young dudes like us. But this one computer, I think it was a 7300 Power Mac. Uh, I'm pretty sure that that's what it was. Like it was sort of, if you were in the know, you knew that you could just plug your freaking cables in the back of the computer and record audio on it. It was really, it wasn't great audio. There was crazy latency and all sorts of issues. But you could, uh, if you really wanted to, record music directly on the computer. And that's a total game changer because from that point we could compete with the big guys. Like we were like 21 and we could produce finish like quote unquote finished music on our own without renting studios, without building studios, without buying crazy expensive equipment. So, so it really became about like, creativity the fight like like over like a very short number of years the 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 sort of fight changed like three years before the fight was like do you have enough expensive equipment to actually produce that recording and three years later it was who's the most creative guy you know that can handle digital technology because at the time again like i was at music school people didn't care about that stuff i was like I was one of the three guys who was like in the whole freaking faculty who were even interested in that stuff, you know? Yeah. So I was in line to get that computer. I could record that stuff. So we could go and I'm sort of like transitioning to like the career and business side of things smoothly. But, but what, what happened? I'm with you. I'm taking the ride with you. <laughs> not, not that I want to. I'm, I'm, I'm fine with talking about music. And by the way, it's, it's, it's super fun. Uh, uh, but what happened is that so, so, so yeah, in line for the computer, buying the computer, set up this like makeshift studio, were able to produce music out of my mother's basement at, at the time. And, and, and suddenly we can go and see these, uh, uh, these uh, well-established creatives in advertising agencies. And I'll make another side note here. That's, that's very important about the, the way we, we got into this is that these guys at ad agencies that we ended up working with, like these guys ended up being my clients for the, the, the 15 years that followed. These guys were like usually our age or just a bit older. They listen to the same music. They attend the same parties. They, 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 they read the same uh, magazines and all that stuff. So culturally, like we were part of the same generation movement and, and all that stuff. 
So we were able to, we were able at the time to go and see these guys that had the same sort of vibe, if you will, and say we're able to produce music that you'll actually dig and understand. And at the time, the alternative for them was to work with big studios that could do the work, that could turn in the music in time according to the broadcast specs and all these like very complicated things. But these guys were like 20 years older. They didn't attend the same parties. They didn't listen to the same music. These creatives were, were, would mention, I don't know, at the time, maybe the Beastie Boys or whatever it is, Massive Attack and all these bands they were listening to. Uh, and they had no idea what they were talking about. Uh, so suddenly these guys we connected with, we were pretty much the only guys that were able to produce music in town uh, on time, according to the specs, blah, 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 with finished masters and all that. But, but music that actually connected with these guys that was like culturally relevant, if you will, um, for these guys. And that, like, I, I want to say we were like so smart to be there at the time, blah, 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 blah. And I guess maybe there's a the part of it that's true, but also it, 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 a big factor in that is that we were in that very, very, very first phase of people who were leveraging compu cheap computer technology. Yeah. And you saw the same thing happen to video later, you know, like just a couple of years, like 10, 10 years later, like a video equipment got crazy cheap with that was the Canon 5D, you know, uh, that was the big breakthrough uh, re, uh, filming on, 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 uh, on uh, DSLR cameras, you know, uh, super nice uh, picture. Yeah, and when you could start to get those Pro-Am cameras in the early 2000s, it was shocking. Like the people that were all of a sudden filmmakers, you know. That's it. Yeah. Over, and then I was like, it felt like it was overnight, you know, a $3,000 camera and suddenly you're making like crazy good looking pictures. Uh, um, yeah. 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 So, um, so th was that, was that, um, was that the first business sort of being in production and helping other people or basically taking this, uh, this newly affordable technology um, and building a production business around that? Is that sort of where you were going? That's exactly what, what, what it ended up being, you know, and, and it's not like we were executing a big master plan at the time. It was we were <laughs> doing what we loved, you know, we love technology, we love great music, and, uh, and we love doing music with our buddies, and we wanted to make a living out of it, you know, so that the business aspect of it is really this understanding that it, it, I, I can't be doing this and working in a restaurant at the same time, you know, so the early years was, was like getting out of the restaurants. That was, that was the business plan, you know, <laughs> 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 it worked. <laughs> so, so we, we got out of the restaurants. Uh, we did that for, for, for uh, pretty much nonstop. Like it's, it's, it's a pretty, I don't know if you want to go there, but the, the, the story of the, this company is, is, is simple. It's like we did music that people liked for agency people that were into uh, culturally relevant, again, is the term that I like for this. And we pushed, 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 pushed. So, so, so after that, it was an expansion to uh, Toronto and eventually to Paris. Uh, and yeah, it, it, at the end, like I, I, we sold that company in 2016 
by the way, the company was called Apollo Studios. And when we sold the company, it was, we were like almost a hundred people, like music producers, engineers, composers, like actual full-time composers, uh, and that type of people over like a, a bunch of, a bunch were in Montreal, another bunch in Toronto. We had a studio in Paris, offices in New York and Berlin. So it was, it was a pretty big shop. Uh, crazy nut house, a very fun uh, man. Honestly, I look back and I'm realizing now how unique it was, you know, because it was really like a hundred people from different cultures, all working to, to, to produce great music. And, and, and the focus was ads, you know, but the thing that again, to do a bit like we did for music school, if you're not in the ad production business, often times people don't realize, uh, people say, oh, it's ad music, you know, so it's background music, it's not very important. Some of it is, tr is true, of course, but a, a lot of it that people don't see is how the people that actually do that work are determined to do something good and great and how ridiculously talented uh, are the people that do this work. And that's like, yeah. it, it still amazes me today because they basically like, you know how hard it is to live off of music. Uh, the guys that end up doing that work are the best of the best of the best in the world. You know, you know, you have the, like the top artists in the world, of course, who make it to, to, an actual artist's career as we typically understand it. But a lot of these people do ad work and a lot of these people just for a bunch of reasons don't make it on the big stage but are not necessarily less talented. And these guys ended up in, in these studios like Apollo Studios that, that we call music houses in the, in the jargon. And, and so around the world you have these music houses where the best of the best of the best congregate and do music for brands. Of course, there's a purpose, you know, outside of like artistic expression, but still the level of craftsmanship, of talent, of experience is, is, is still like super humbling to me. Like I've met people doing that that are just so amazingly good. <laughs> um, so that's it. So, so, so that's what we did. Uh, over these 15 years, one, again, like I was mentioning, uh, like posts along the way, or like, I, I don't know how to call them, um, not milestones, whatever. You see what I mean, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. uh, one of them was like when we got out of Montreal first, okay? And, and that, that, that's a story that I love because like we didn't know our way around the world. We know we're from Montreal, we're young, we don't know anything about business. We have this like appetite to, to do these things, but we don't know how to go about doing them. And what ended up happening, and that again, it's sort of, it, 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 there wasn't like a, a huge amount of purpose to it, but that's how we ended up doing things is that we would go to Toronto, which is a very North American city, right? It's like North American culture, very uh, similar to, to big US cities. Um, and since we were from Montreal, which 
for those of you that don't know, Montreal is, uh, is in Quebec, which is a French, mostly French-speaking uh, part of Canada. Uh, so, so we would go to Toronto and say, oh, we have like the Euro European touch, you know, because <laughs> we speak French and we know all the yeah. French music and the European, like uh, we could claim so a sort of legitimacy of being somewhat more European than these guys. And at the time, Europe was cool, you know, you had all the, the, the cool, uh, like a, uh, the British invasion, but the, like the cool rock bands from London at the time, the cool. Yeah, all the Britpop bands and then all the trip hop and all that. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, so all we the could, great music, we could sort of claim a descendants, a, a connection to that because uh, from Montreal is slightly more European than any other place in the US or, or Canada. Uh, so, so that's a claim we could make. And, and very just, diverse population in terms of, you know, that's you, it. You have the Caribbean influence. Like it's a very, Asian. people who aren't familiar with that city don't, I don't think realize just how diverse Montreal is. Yeah, it is. And, and it's very, it's diverse and it's culturally very different from most American cities. Uh, I, I can't really compare it, uh, uh, but anyway, so so we could we could sort of claim that European sound, and, and at the time, like French French touch was a big thing. Uh, anyway, that's <laughs> so, right. There was even a moment where like French rappers were kind of a thing. That's it. Yeah. So so so, yeah. so we could so we so we had that like a European sound, and at the exact same time, we were working the Paris market, claiming we had an American sound which is such a, like a Montreal thing to do when you look back, you know? <laughs> so so it, it was very genuine, but like faking it at the same time, like, like with words coming out, both sides of them out at the exact same time, but with a certain like authenticity to it, because that's what Montreal is, you know? It's like a feet in North America and uh, or a couple of toes at least in, in uh, Europe. Uh, so that was that's that's how we we expanded that that was that that's our sort of like a uh, emergent master plan is just say we're Europeans to Americans and say we're Americans to Europeans, um, and of course we realized that afterwards that we were doing that like while you do it you just you're just doing what that's you right. have to you're just do. doing the hustle you're just running the that's hustle. It. Uh, well, I guess two two things that sort of that become apparent to me. Um, one is that, uh, you know, your point about the craftsmanship in that music, I think I'm, I'm sure you've seen this far more than I have, but in my limited experience, I, I've observed whether it's um, a piece of film, a commercial, a video game, when you lay down the music bed, the visual comes to life in a much different way. Um, you know, then you add the sound design on top of that and it takes it to a whole other level. But it, it your, your comment makes sense that um, sort of, the elite nature of the craftsmen who are working on this stuff takes it from being um, simply a commercial with music to a commercial with maybe emotional impact, or that is really achieving some other objective. And the music could be the piece that differentiates um, the, you know, sort of the effectiveness of the, of the, of the, of the product. Um, but the other thing is, I think you've drawn the parallel now for me of um, the, the rough theme of um, what your past is and what you're doing now. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't apparent to me from the outside how you wound up um, working in um, and I want you to say it better than I'm going to, but with a product that is essentially um, bringing well-crafted music to the marketplace. 
um, in a different way. So could you talk a little bit about now um, Apollo gets sold and what's Bopper and how did you come to that? Yeah, well, so so Bopper was born inside the walls of of Apollo Studios, and and very quickly, like the 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 what what happened is that we sold Apollo Studios to Media Group, and at the time, the only thing I didn't want to sell what was uh, what was called at the time Apollo Music Store, which is now Bopper. Uh, so it was it was born inside a Apollo Studios as Apollo Music Store. But it wasn't worth anything. It was just like this thing we were toying with at the time, um, like half-baked idea with a bunch of songs, a couple of contracts, and, and, and a couple of experiments. So I didn't want to sell that because it wasn't worth anything. Plus, it was a project I was very much invested personally into at the time, and for which I saw a very interesting, promising future. And that's what became Bopper. So I sold everything else, held on to what's now Bopper. And, and, and what Bopper is, is uh, basically the problem we, we were trying to solve and that we're, we, we think we, we have like a, a potent answer to uh, with Bopper is how can brands and the people we were working with at the time are the same people we're working with now. How can these people that produce content for brands, so ads or films for brands, whatever it is they're producing for brands, how can these people source uh, music by indie artists? Okay, So it's a very like narrow problem, uh, but I always felt it was a, an important one. And eventually... It grew out of like just the ad business to expand into the film and tele- television worlds uh, for different reasons. Um, but the, the idea remains the same is how can people purchase the rights to use music by indie, ba- indie bands on their productions? Which sounds like so simple, you know, you're like, mm-hmm. okay, that uh, if you're familiar with the music business a bit, you you probably heard that back in the day, artists didn't want their music on commercials after the semi, let's call it, reorganization of their uh, record business. Um, uh, that change and artists were much more interested in, in partnering up with brands and offering their music uh, to brands under certain conditions, uh, but there was a, a clear openness uh, to do these types of, uh, of deals. Um, so with that, uh, how is it so inefficient, you know? Because before Bopper, if you wanted to have a track for an indie band uh, on your commercial, let's say, uh, I won't like go step by step uh, through the process, but it is a very, very laborious process. Just, just the finding of the music in itself is a bit of a problem because we have like music discovery tools with like Spotify and Apple Music and all these things, but they're not made to find music for, for a particular scene or a particular emotion or a particular uh, thing we need or would like to express. They're made to, to consume music in a certain way. And all these tools, uh, and we've used them proficiently to find music for our clients, they're not really helpful. You know, you can do a certain, a couple of things with them, but, but when, when you're looking for like a, 
an old school track that talks about togetherness that speaks to people between 40 and 50 years old, Spotify doesn't really help, you know. Um, right. It's part of your arsenal, but it's still very inefficient. So just the finding of that music is a problem in itself, especially if you were looking for maybe like music that's up and coming, which is often a problem we were, uh, we were uh, like a, 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 something we were asked to, to find, you know, like, okay, find me an up and coming band that does uh, this or that. So, so that's even more of a problem, finding that music for an up and coming indie band. So, so just the finding of the music is a nightmare. And the, I don't want to spend too much time on this because it's a fascinating subject, but it's also a rabbit hole. <laughs> but like clearing music for these productions oh, is, yeah. is a, you see, it's a, it's a, it's a nightmare. So, so there's all sorts of intricacies and, and all sorts of people involved, all sorts of companies involved, all sorts of, of legal systems involved. If you go from one place to the next, sometimes the legal system is, is, is slightly or vastly different. So, so clearing those rights, um, it's, we can't overstate uh, uh, how complicated uh, this can get. Um, so those are the two sides of the problem. So when you're saying like, uh, like a lot of people, uh, we told ourselves, why can't we buy music uh, online, let's say, and, and do like uh, Amazon for, for indie bands, you know? It sounds so simple, like, like slapping a bunch of tracks on a website and uh, adding a shopping cart and, uh, and, uh, and Bob's your uncle, you know? But that, that's, in, in reality, it's, it's much more difficult than that. And that's the challenge we, uh, we uh, undertook at the time. And uh, I'm really happy where we landed. Like we, we've had a mature product since I would say 2019. Before that, it was like a bunch of uh, experiments, iterations, uh, and, and what we launched as Bopper in, in, in 2019 is really what I find, like as, as a person that's been looking for music for pretty much all of my career, like music, looking for music for productions, uh, to me, that's, that's, the, that's the best tool out there. And, I, I, and I'm, of course, it's my company and all that. But first and foremost, it's like, like my, my sort of obsession with this is this finding is building a, a coherent usable uh, uh, solution to that problem that uh, we've been thrown at so many times uh, by our clients so so, so so that's what bopper does so so they're in a nutshell so that's not so it's a two-sided marketplace of of brands or agencies looking for um thematically appropriate music and then the creators who are provisioning that music and in between are you dealing with curation and screening that music? Are you dealing with a taxonomy for helping the brands find the music? Like what, what's the problem you have to solve to make the whole thing work? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a multi-head uh, creature, but uh, uh, it's, it's not technically like when people say two-sided marketplace, usually they mean, uh, if I'm not mistaken, that it's, it's somewhat open. So people like eBay is a two-sided marketplace in the sense that people will go on there, like the suppliers will go on there and post their stuff and buyers will come and buy. But it's, it's, it, 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 the general understanding is that it's open. In our case, it's not open. Uh, so, so we do screen every bit of music that's on there. 
heavily um, to avoid, uh, just to avoid too much content. Because what, one thing like out of the gates that, that we feel is, 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 um, it's not only important, it's, it's required for this to work. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to order my ideas here to be clear. Uh, one of the requirements for us for this to work is that this needs to be immediate, okay? So it, that's like basic stuff. It needs to be immediate. So that means that all the rights needs to be uh, cleared in advance. So that means that there's like tons of manual work right there. Like there's a, there's a very human layer to it where we laboriously research every piece of, uh, of uh, copyright that's attached to every recording that we post on there. So that's a very, very manual uh, uh, labor that's done. So that, that's, that's one part of the, the human layer. The other part of the human layer, as you mentioned, is, is the curation. And for that, and like, I know people like, oh, sorry. <laughs> I know, I know people, sorry about that. Uh, like people throw this word around, okay, curation, and we don't even use it anymore because it's, it's, it's so overused that it's almost like detrimental to what you're trying to say. Uh, but still in its essence, this is what we're doing, okay? And it's probably the most fundamental chunk of the human layer in our product. And to us, curation, so, so the, like the common sense of curation is like, okay, uh, selecting stuff that's appropriate for a certain crowd, blah, blah, blah. For us, curation is one of the, 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 the key things because it translates for our clients into time savings, okay? And the way it works for us mm. is that we basically use our experience in what works and what doesn't work. And I'll give you a couple of examples, okay? Like, in ads, if we're talking just about ads, like there's whole genres of music that from my 15 years experience has never, have never been used ever in the ad space, okay? And I, I have nothing against these, these genres. I listen to the, that music all the time. But I mentioned like old time music. I don't remember doing like one single old time music sync in, in, in my whole career, okay? Metal is another one. Uh, for I don't know if it's right or wrong, but jazz doesn't sync either, you know? So, so our job is to filter that out, okay? Like not, not that we have like a metal and jazz filter, but we, like, we try to like focus on, on, on what sells. And what the, the effect of that, of just filtering what doesn't work is that like every piece of music that's presented to our clients, regardless of what they're looking for, has some relevance in their work, okay? And that's yeah, yeah. major, 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 major. Okay, so so we throw we used to throw curation around, and everybody says that. But for us, curation only makes sense when you're actually saving time, and you actually elicit that little warm and fuzzy feeling that the person or the the the, the product or the website or the library or whatever it is they're looking at understands them. So for us, it's a very, curation is not just like, oh, we have someone selecting good and bad music. That's not how it works. For us, curation is translating years and years and years and years of experience into time efficiencies and that warm and fuzzy feeling that the website understands me, you know? Right, so that, right. That, that's what curation is for us. So that's the, that's the human layer. So clearing the rights, 
doing the curation. Like if we could automate it, automate this, maybe we would, but at the moment for us, it's too important to be automated and we're not really looking at automated that we're, we're automating that we're automating tons of things that have less value um but these are these to us it's it's the like the it's an important contribution you know uh, uh, sort of encapsulating the experience into uh, uh this curation to save time and all that stuff so that's one layer the other layer is the the the, the tech layer which is uh, being it's it's another big chunk obviously and you mentioned taxonomies so of course there's all sorts of taxonomies but these days we tend to go more in the direction of uh, leveraging uh, machine learning and like we we speak more in terms of and, and it's kind of nerdy, but we speak more in terms of vectors than taxonomies these days. Like taxon, when we say taxonomy for, 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 uh, for everyone to understand, we mean like tags, like styles of music, genres of music, modes of music. And that's sort of the classical way of sorting music for a search engine to be able to retrieve that. So we do have that and that's important and people are familiar with that way of searching. But in the background, we also have uh, I call them the vectors and I, and I won't go further into the nerdiness of it, but basically that be more natural language. Well, there, there's a natural language component that makes like clusters of meanings. That's the, that's the, on, on, in the search engine, that's the part that tries to understand what you actually mean, you know, cause people ex express themselves in different ways. So the natural language part is like making sense of that. Okay. Of what you actually mean. So that's one part of the, 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 the tech layer. And another part is, is under, I'm doing air quotes here, <laughs> understanding what's in the music itself, okay? Because you might use words to, to, uh, to describe music. They might be accurate or not. And that's one of the problems we're facing, you know? Like your, your, your proficiency with musical terms highly influences the way uh, you'll search for it. And you, we sort of have to kind of, not ignore, but try to understand your meaning behind the actual words you're using to give you good results, you know? So that's the, the kind of things we're, we're, we're thinking about and working on with the natural language processing. And the, the machine learning part is really uh, using the intrinsic properties of music to, suggested mu to suggest you music that you like. And that's stuff we've built like internally uh, using like uh, academic research and our people uh, in the company uh, to to build this 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 tech stack. So so for us, the way we see this, we 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 see this like I mentioned layers. There's a highly important human layer that provides all the expert expertise and all that. And uh, and on top of that, there's a tech layer that kind of makes sense of this, tries to automate a bunch of processes and all always with the same goal of like helping our clients find the music like really fast, like it's almost magical, you know, that's, that's yeah. the words we're using, you know, like trying to, to make this, oh my God, how did it understand what we were looking for? That's, that's like the sort of guiding light, you know? And so we have all these tools, uh, manual and, and tech related that like try to get us to this point. And I think we're, we're doing a good job at it. But it, it never ends, you know. It, uh, like the, the, the big challenge for us these days is to 
like we're working with voice search, we're experimenting with that, we're experimenting with putting more features on mobile, which is another set of problems because mobile is so small and what we're trying to achieve is still kind of a complex task. So we're trying to squeeze more, but without making it confusing, you know? So because you could always like pile up features and features and features. And all I'll do is like make you anxious about your work, you know, because it'll be hard and difficult. And, and, and that's the, we try to stay, steer clear of that as much as possible and keep it uh, fun and uh, warm and fuzzy. Yeah. Uh, well, I know in, 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 in new and fast growing companies, it's often difficult to talk about, um, specific roles or division of labor, especially amongst founders. But um, when you wear your product hat, um, is this primarily what you're thinking about? The usability, the scalability, the... the I, I'm, I'm, to, to me, it's like I, I, I realized like along the way that, w- that I was using what a lot of people refer to as design thinking. Uh, that, that's my framework for thinking about this. And... and like phase one of design thinking and, and which to me is, well, they're all important, you know, but phase one of design thinking is empathizing. So basically putting yourself into the other, other people, other person's shoes, um, trying to understand where they're coming from, what do they want? And, and the minute you do that, the minute it shields you from a lot of bad decisions, you know, because it's very tempting as a product person to say, oh, this is so cool. Everybody's, everyone's got to have it. Uh, we gotta, I got to put it in their face. Uh, they have to use it because it's the best thing since sliced bread, you know. But when, when, when I sort of turn the tables and see how, where they're coming from, what ex- exactly the problem they're trying to solve, like it really, like, hardcore empathizing when where they're coming from it, it, it changes my priorities it, 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 cha- it changes the way i look into something so, so that's really the pair of glasses i'm wearing as, yeah. as a product person and then like the the rest of the design thinking process uh, if i sum it up and uh, like i am not not an expert by any means but it it, it, it usually uh the next steps are usually a series of iterations with testing, you know? So, so that's interesting too, because the, the iteration and testing, what it's specifically trying, uh, helping you to avoid is to think you have all the answers, build something very elaborate, very finished and put it out there thinking you've solved all the problems, which it, it, it rarely works like that. So, so it keeps you humble in, in, in all of that. So you're empathizing to understand the problem, but the following series of iterations and testing helps you keep you in check. You know, if you think you've solved everything and understood everything, well, it, it tells you instead of building a very elaborate, complex thing and, and then launching it, try, try something simple, put it out there, see how people react and iterate. So that's, that's a very standard way of, 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 yeah. of thinking these things. Uh, but from someone who would, who's not from a product background, you know, I'm from a music and, and business background, uh, and it's kind of a new role to me, you know. To me, those are the, like the, the thing that help me, like, I don't know, uh, stay humble and, and focused uh, in, in this uh, process. 
Yeah. And how do you get at the, um, how do you get at the empathy? Are you doing, are you interviewing users? Are you just leveraging your, you know, your 15 years of experience at Apollo? How, how do you, how do you get yourself into the, the point of view of the, um, the potential user? Well, we, we feed off every piece of feedback that we get. So, so everything, like coming from the chat, from emails, everything we get, we take seriously, even the most like, like random, most uh, like there, there's not a piece of feedback that I won't look at seriously. And, and uh, not to say that we'll do everything we're asked, that, 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 that's not the idea, but we'll consider, we'll try to understand every piece of feed, feedback that we get. We don't do uh, as much interviews as we should. Like we, we, we do it with like, and we, I think you, every product person would tell you that, uh, but we do it in like critical phases, um, phases uh, of product development, uh, but we could obviously do more always. Um, the, the experience at this stage is, is, almost dangerous i would say because there is strong bias that comes with the experience so so i think experience is paramount like when you start something because you can't just like test every freaking idea you come up with like you won't do anything you know at some point you have to commit to an idea and run with it so i think that's what we've done for for at least the first few uh phases um but at some point it becomes, it could be a bias. And, and, and I, I've tried over, especially in Bopper, to surround myself with people uh, from a different background, from different perspectives that could challenge these things. Because like, like there's not a week that comes by where I'm not like uh, convinced that from my 15 years of experience in the ad uh, business, we should do things this way. And then the next week, I'm proving wrong by, by uh, <laughs> the data we get, you know, yeah, uh, yep. which is good. You know, it, it yep. keeps you in check. So, so um, it's helpful when, like, what you, when you don't know what to do, when you need to, like, make a decision with, like, very little information, which is what I find, like, as entrepreneurs, that, that I find that's the only thing I do well, you know, take decisions with very little, with bad information. But that's when right. you start getting good information... You're, you're less needed, you know? So, so, so I, I tend to go and I tend to wear those hats in the companies that I've been founded or been in or whatever. I tend to wear those hats where there's not enough good information and someone needs to make a call, you know? I, I gravitate towards these, uh, these roles naturally. Yeah. Ambiguity, imperfect data. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. It. yeah. Well, um, thank you so much for sharing your insights. I, I really appreciate um, the time that you've given today. Um, it's, it's really fascinating to talk with you and um, I think you, you, you've, you've talked about some universal truths in, in, in your path and your experience that I think people will enjoy hearing about. Um, we'll make sure in the episode notes that we point people to Bopper so they can get some more firsthand information. Um, but thank you, Phil. I really enjoyed speaking with you. Well, thanks for this time with you. That was, uh, that was a fun chat, man. Thank you so much, Phil Messier and the team at Bopper. Thank you, Macy McCollum, for making this conversation happen. Thanks to Ant Taylor and the entire team at Light. If you're interested in what we're up to at Light, visit us at lyte.com. 
And thank you for listening to Spotlight On. We're available from Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, and wherever you like to get your podcasts from. While you're listening, please also leave a rating and a review. Thanks in advance. Keep your feedback coming. Reach me directly at lp at light.com. Thank you, be safe, and stay in touch. Thank you.